0: Christ is the new Adam. St. Paul beautifully lays that out for us in our second reading from his letter to the Romans. And he calls Adam the type of the one who was to come. The type of the one who was to come. What does that mean? Well, he points out the details, right? Says in both cases, the deeds of one hugely affect the deeds of many. For by the disobedience of Adam, sin entered the world. By the obedience of Christ, um, we will be made righteous. We were redeemed and um, we were offered this gift of salvation. In other words, it means that Adam is a prophetic image pointing towards the Messiah, Jesus Christ. How is this possible? The truth is that God can and frequently does write a deeper meaning into the events of salvation history. It is by the power of God that the historical events, the institutions, the persons in the Bible, they're capable of signifying future events or supernatural realities because God is the primary author of sacred scripture. By his divine providence, he is the author, the true author of history. So on this first Sunday of Lent, Church draws our attention to the parallel between Adam and Christ. But more than that, or in addition to that, I should say, Christ's temptations in the desert, they point towards his cross and the victory that he would win on Calvary. And all three, Adam's temptation, his failure in the face of temptation, Christ's triumph in the face of temptation and his victory on the cross, they shed light on the meaning of this holy season of Lent. And all of this centers around this threefold temptation Christ faces in our gospel. It is after he's fasted uh, for 40 long days and nights that Satan approaches him and says, if you are the son of God, command that these stones be turned to bread. This is not so much a temptation, um, or a challenge, I should say, to see if Christ is who he says he is. No, it's, it's a temptation to get Christ to use his divinity, his divine power, to work miracles for his own benefit, to alleviate his suffering. Christ responds, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes forth from the mouth of God. And here we see a shadow of Christ's passion. In Matthew 27, when our Lord is on the cross and he's mocked people, the the crowd yells at him, If you are the Son of God, come down from that cross. Then we will believe you. Use your divine power to alleviate your suffering. Then we will believe you. In both cases, Jesus refuses to work a miracle for his benefit to lessen his suffering. For he came not to do his own will, but the will of the Father. As he says in John chapter 4, his food is to do the will of the one who sent him, his heavenly Father, and to complete his work. The second temptation, the devil takes Jesus to the holy city, standing on the parapet of the temple, and says, Throw yourself down, if you are the Son of God. And he cites Psalm 90, that the Lord will command his angels uh, to guard and support you. Now, the devil isn't quoting scripture out of context here. Psalm 90 is about uh, the divine promises to the Messiah, the Christ. But Jesus responds that it is written, We are not to put the Lord our God to the test. Moreover, the Father's will is that the Son would redeem the world not by triumph in spectacle, but by the path of humility and suffering. Fast forward to his passion in Matthew 26, when Jesus is betrayed in the Garden of Gethsemane and arrested. As they're arresting him, one of his disciples draws a sword and strikes the servant of the high priest and cuts off his ear. And Jesus tells him to put it away and says, those who live by the sword die by the sword. But then he says this, do you think that I cannot appeal to my father? And he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels. In his passion, as in his temptation, in the wilderness, Jesus refuses divinely guaranteed uh, angelic aid for the sake of the cross. He refuses the path of triumph and spectacle. He embraces the path of suffering and humility. He embraces Calvary. The third and final temptation, the devil takes Christ up to a very high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world in their magnificence, and says, all these are yours if you bow down and worship me. Of course, here's the interesting thing. Christ is absolutely entitled to dominion over the entire world. What the devil is doing here is offering him a shortcut of devil worship. You won't have to go through the pain of the cross if you but bow down down to me and worship me." Jesus swiftly rejects Satan's absurd temptation. Begone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God, and him only shall you serve. Once again, we see a connection to Christ's passion. As the devil takes Jesus up a high mountain, so the Roman soldiers will press Christ to carry his cross to Mount Calvary. And on Mount Calvary, he will not offer Blasphemous and absurd worship to the devil, but the most perfect worship to God the Father, united in the Holy Spirit, when he offers his very life as a sacrifice and atonement for our sins. And it is by this obedience on Calvary, by being willing to empty himself on the cross, that he is exalted. That at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bend in heaven on the earth and under the earth. Adam was put to the test in the garden. He was tempted by the ancient serpent, the enemy of mankind, and Adam failed, bringing sin, suffering, and death into the world. Christ, the new Adam, by contrast, enters the desert wilderness of this fallen world. He is put to test by the same ancient serpent, the same fallen angel. Yet by his obedience and humility, he succeeds where Adam failed. His triumph in the desert wilderness, it points forward, finally, to his ultimate victory on Calvary. All three, Adam's failure in the face of temptation, Christ's triumph in the face of temptation, his victory on Calvary, they also teach us about this holy season of Lent, Man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. The truth is we are far more dependent upon the will of God than we are for material food. For we have a hunger in our soul that cannot be satiated by things of this world, by food or by pleasure, by any good thing the world offers us. We have a hunger in our soul that can only be satiated by a deep in intimate communion with God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And our prayer, our fasting, our almsgiving, especially our fasting in this regard, is meant to remind us of that deep gnawing hunger within us. You shall not put the Lord your God to the test, Jesus says in response to the second temptation. This means that we ought to trust in him over our own judgment and over the judgment of the world. Adam and Eve fell because they listened to the lies of the ancient serpent rather than the word of God, God who cannot deceive nor be deceived. In our Lenten prayer, we must learn to listen and trust the word of God. Finally begone, Satan, it is written, the Lord your God shall you worship and him alone shall you serve. We must embrace the cross of this Lent, prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, and do so as a, as a service in worship to God. We don't engage in penitential practices to show the strength of our will or to lose weight. No, we engage in Him so that we can participate in the cross of our Lord, so that we can go into the desert with Him, so that we share in His victory. God does not want us to be passive spectators in our salvation, but active and willing participants. This Holy season of Lent, it's a transforming mystery during which our penitential practices can bring us more deeply into the mystery of the dying and rising Christ. But the choice is ours. Will we follow Adam or Christ? As we begin this Lenten campaign, let us go into the desert with Christ, arming ourselves with prayer, fasting, and almsgiving, embracing the cross, following him all the way to Calvary, so that we can share in the victory of the empty tomb come Easter.